two. Second um, Chronicles chapter thirty-five. Second Chronicles chapter thirty-five, and this is about the great Passover of Josiah. The great Passover of Josiah. In this chapter, we have a record of the Passover that was kept. This was something new for the people of Josiah's generation. And he carefully followed the procedures that were written in the book of Moses. So let's begin in chapter 35 with verses 1 through 7. And it says, Now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Then he said to the Levites, who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place, according to the divisions of the father's houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the father's house of the Levites. So slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock, all for the Passover offerings for all who were present, to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. One of the duties of the Levites was to carry the Ark of the Covenant wherever Israel traveled. And here Josiah ordered the Levites to put the Holy Ark in the temple. The Ark may have been moved during the reigns of the earlier wicked kings, Manasseh and Ammon. And so uh, Josiah was telling the Levites to put it back, you know, put it where it belongs, again, in uh, the the house of God, in the the temple. Um, The Ark was now permanently housed in the temple. It was in its resting place. So it wouldn't need to be carried around anymore like it was in the wilderness. Josiah here was telling the Levites, now that you put it in the house of the, of the temple where it belongs, that frees you up to do other things. They were now to serve the Lord their God and his people Israel. They were to take their place in the sanctuary that was appointed to them and, the, and their families, and, and to, I'm sorry, and to, and to the, that was appointed them, and to help the families that were assigned to them as they brought their offerings to the temple. And they were to slaughter the Passover lambs, purify themselves, and prepare to help those who came, and to follow all the directions that the Lord had given them through Moses. In other words, instead of them carrying the ark around like they were used to doing, They were to do more important services in the sanctuary. They were to be a big help by helping all of their brethren to keep the sacred feast and helping to carry out the commandments of the Lord. So what they were to do in in putting the, the, the Ark of the Covenant in the house of God, they were to give up the lower service of carrying the Ark for the higher service. You know, the the mechanical, the more routine one that is service for the more spiritual one, giving up one task that was no longer needed 
for one that was needed right away. Moving from a somewhat unprofitable duty for one that would probably result in in more fruitful devotion and godliness. Now, you could say that all work for God is good and acceptable. So don't misunderstand this. Don't take it in the wrong way, as I hope to clarify that. All work for God is good and profitable. So don't, I guess, don't misunderstand. This didn't mean that carrying the ark was not a service to God, nor was it important. Now, no devout Jew would have ever agreed that carrying the ark of the covenant under God's orders was not an act of service. You see, it doesn't matter how humble or how trivial the work is that we do for God, as long as we do it. As long as we do it. And as long as we do it cheerfully, not forced or grudgingly, as Paul said when we gave, he says, do it, do it with joy and not with, you know, don't do it grudgingly. Also, as long as we do the service of the Lord faithfully, and Paul said, let the stewards of God be found faithful. Whatever we've been called to do, whatever we're led to do, let us be cheerful about it. Let us be faithful about it. Let us do it carefully, doing our part and carrying it out faithfully and completely. Third, as long as we do it, as long as we serve the Lord, let us do it harmoniously. That is in unity with our fellow brothers and sisters. And fourth, let us do it religiously, which means lovingly doing what we do as unto the Lord and not as unto man. Then if we do it cheerfully and faithfully and harmoniously and religiously, then it's good service. It is blessed service and it's acceptable to the Lord. But there's another side to this service. You see, in serving the Lord, there are works that are to be preferred over others if they're taken in the right way. And that is because they're basically better. Now, here's what I'm saying. There is a work that's to be preferred if we're given the choice. In other words, the spiritual versus the mechanical. For example, leading in prayer or teaching a Bible study which leads to a deeper and fuller commitment. That's to be preferred to the work of maybe the doorkeeper in the house who who stood there and and watched who came in and out again at God's house. All right. So uh, again, that's that's where we're to look at what was taking place here when they, they stopped carrying the ark to do other things in the house of God. That is the costly versus no cost. In other words, do I want to do something for the Lord that doesn't cost me anything? It's better to give Jesus that which costs us something. The work that calls for and requires our strength and our labor and and, and nights spent in prayer, a work of real applying ourselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 15, and I will very gladly be, uh, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So again, there is there is is work of service that that is that is again more costly. Uh, it, it brings us to a greater devotion and, and spirituality than other positions. But whatever it is, they're all important for the Lord. And remember, Jesus had somebody one time in the Gospels get him a boat, got him a donkey, and so again, those were uh, they 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 may be trivial, but the Lord asked for them. That means he needed him. That was an important thing. So, again, not to take any service as, you know, trivial or, or, or meaningless, 
but there are some services of the Lord that, that have a greater commitment and more cost and, and, and are more fruitful in, in what we do. Verses 8 through 16 now. And the writer goes on to say, And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests, and to the Levites, Hilkiah, Zechariah, and Jael, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Also, Conaniah, his brother, Shemaiah, and Nathaniel, and uh, uh, Hashabiah, and Jael, and Josabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands, while the Levites skinned the animals. Then they removed the burnt offerings, that they might give them to the divisions of the father's houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the cattle. Also, they roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance. But the other holy offerings, they boiled in pots, in cauldrons and in pans and divided them quickly among all the lay people. Uh, then afterward, they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests because the priests, uh, because the priests, the sons of Aaron were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron and the singers and the sons of Asaph were in their places. According to the command of David, Asaph, Heman and Jejuthun, the king's seer. Also, the gatekeepers were at each gate. They did not have to leave their position. Look at this, because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. They didn't have to leave their jobs because their brothers uh, prepared food for them and took care of them. A beautiful picture of ministry. It's not, you know, well, this is my ministry and, and that this is all that I do. Hey, does my brother and sister need something where they're serving? Well, you know, let me bring them a water. Let me give them something that they need. And that's the picture we see here. Verse 16. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of Josiah. So here we see the service of the Lord. And from these verses... Of Josiah's great Passover, we can learn some things. First of all, that serving God offers a lot of opportunity. I mean, when you read these verses, look at how many people, different classes of people, men, classes of men, they all contributed to this one service. The king inspired and directed the service in verses 1 and 2. The Levites killed the Passover in verses 6 through 11. The priests sprinkled the blood in verse 11. The Levites skinned the animals in verse 11. The heads of the divisions from the king on down, they gave willingly and generously from their flocks to supply the people's need. <clears throat> Verses 7 through 9. Verse 15 says, The singers sang. The gatekeepers were on duty at each gate so that the Levites also served them because they couldn't leave their posts. Verse 15. So all of this service of the Lord was prepared or performed. Again, everybody doing their part and doing their best at it, according to verse 16. You see, this is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. The church of, jo of Jesus Christ, it's one body, but many members. And all the members of the body of Christ, we don't all have the same job. The Lord's people serve many different functions, but you know what? They should all be working in harmony with one another. 
Peter said in 1 Peter 4.10, God has given each one of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. So when you say, oh, I don't have a gift, well, you're contradicting scripture. Peter says, all of God's people have been given a gift. You just need to find out what it is. And the best way to find out is to serve. To serve wherever that might be. It may not be something that you think, well, this is, you know, when I first started serving over at Calvary Chapel, West Covina, way back, and God was speaking to me about serving, I didn't know where I wanted to serve. And when we were, uh, when we went to the the Kung Fu studio over where we all used to teach Kung Fu there on um, Azusa Avenue, I thought, okay, well, what do I do? Uh, well, I started helping to clean the bathrooms. And, well, that wasn't it. You know, I helped um, uh, ushering. I, helped, I went to all the different kinds of ministries. And, and then, you know, when God, you know, uh, led me to the marriage ministry, I knew that was it. And for several years, that was the ministry that God put me and Kathy in, was the marriage ministry. But it starts out by going and, and starting in a ministry and, and letting God lead you to that place. And he'll show you what your gift is. He'll show you where he wants you to serve. We read here that, well, every year, Christian life and everyday life, as we all know, it becomes more complicated. And it becomes more definite and necessary our responsibility to recognize that our own particular ministry is important. But it's only one among many other ministries. And that every one of us is responsible to their fellow Christian brothers and sisters for valuable services that they can't provide. We all have an area of service where others can't provide and vice versa. And it's important to remember this. That in the church there ha- that, that has many sides to it, the church is multifaceted, with so many needs to be filled, there's no reason, no valid reason for any Christian not to be serving. Secondly, we learn from these verses that, that we should serve others before we serve ourselves. That's what verse 14 is saying here. Notice again, it says, After the people had eaten the holy meal, the Levites served themselves and the priests of Aaron. They met the needs of others before they met their own needs. As a Christian, we're not to stand upon our so-called official rights. We're to stand on the highest honor of serving others first, following the life of Christ, following after his example. Our master and our leader said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. When Jesus and Peter went to Capernaum, remember the tax collectors came to Peter and and they asked Peter, hey, doesn't your, your teacher pay the temple tax? Peter said, well, yeah, of course he does. Then Peter goes to talk to Jesus about it. But before Peter could say anything, Jesus asked him, Peter, what do you think? Do kings tax their own people or, or the foreigners that they've conquered? Peter said, well, they, they tax the foreigners. Jesus said, well, then the citizens are free. He said, but so that we don't so that we don't offend the people, the tax go down to the lake, throw in a line. Open the mouth of the first fish that you catch and you're going to find in the mouth of that fish a coin. Take that coin and pay the taxes for both of us. See, he had the right. He didn't have to pay the taxes because he was a citizen. But you know what? He says, lest we offend him. We didn't, he didn't want to offend them. Let's pay the taxes. 
He didn't stand upon his rights. He sought the needs of others. And we're never more like Jesus than when we surrender any right we think we might have. And then we choose to wait on others. To minister to their needs first. To make them glad or to do, or to do them good first. We can think of ourselves and take care of ourselves afterwards, but not first. That's what we see here. Philippians 2, 4, Paul said, Let each one of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We have a great example of this in Genesis chapter 18, 1 through 8. When we have this kind of service that Jesus is talking about with Abraham. Let me read it to you. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as Abraham was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. It says, and when he saw them, and notice the words that, we, that, that describe Abraham's service. And when he saw them, he ran from the front tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And he said, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the terebinth tree. Notice the hospitality that he gave them. He says, and I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. So Abraham, it says, he hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf. He didn't go and look, okay, which is the lousiest calf we got here that I can, you know, serve. We keep the good one for ourselves. No, he took a tender and good calf and gave it to a young man and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf when he had prepared it and set it before them and he stood by them. It doesn't say he sat with them and ate. He stood by them under the tree as they ate. It's important to understand who Abraham was. Abraham was a sheik. He was a very wealthy man. He had a large estate and 300 servants. But notice he submitted himself to the lowly position of a servant to these three guests. He wasn't so proud that he couldn't be a servant to these heavenly visitors. You see, service means submission. And it took that position, and he took that position of a servant. All of us are servants. It doesn't matter how great our position is in the world. We are still servants before God and nothing more. Abraham served the Lord, and Abraham gave the best that he had to, 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 these, to these men. We read that he ran back to the tent. He didn't walk and dawdle. And just, he ran back to the tent. And he, says, he said to Sarah, Sarah, hurry up and get three measures of your best flour, knead it into a dough, and bake some bread for these guys. Sarah could have said, wait a minute. You're going to run in here and tell me to hop to it and, and, and make this bread for these guys with no, no warning? You must be crazy. Then Abraham he runs out to the herd. He runs again and he chooses a tender calf, a good calf, the best of the flock to give these. And he prepares it. Again, Sarah could have said, wait a minute, you know what? You, 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 you can't just do this on, on short notice without, you know, give me some time to, to do this. Notice how Abraham and Sarah served these three visitors personally and then and, and, and and again, and they did exactly what needed to be done. 
as the scripture says in 2 Timothy 4, to be ready in season and out of season. And then when everything was ready, Abraham served the three visitors personally. He didn't have any of his servants come and do all of this. And then after he serves them personally, he stands close by them as they ate in case they needed anything. And, you know, it's really sad how many ministers today and leaders want to be served. And I remember, you know, when I was at Golden Springs uh, and you were serving, you didn't you don't you didn't leave the premises to run off and get coffee or get something to eat. Pastor Ross said, you either eat before you get here, before you serve, or after, but not on God's time. As a servant, you need to be like Abraham, standing by, being available in case you're... You know, when you have a function, and, you know, and, and some, a ministry going on, and, and it's going on, you need to be there in case help is needed. You know, if I run off to get something to eat, and, and you're needed, what, what good is that? And I remember one time... People were coming in, you know, in the, in the morning when I was at Golden Springs. And many of them would go to the break room and put on the coffee pot and have coffee. Rawl shut that down and Pastor Rawl shut that down. And he says, nope, he took the coffee pot out of there. Would you do that on your job? If you went to work, you punched in. And you go to the break room and you just sit down and have a, coffee, a cup of coffee before you get started. I don't think so. I don't think your boss would enjoy that, and you probably wouldn't be around very long. Why do we do that on God's time? Why do we take God for granted? It's just one of the things that, that we learn from these. Listen to Jesus' version of this service in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, if you want to mark that down along with Genesis um, 8, uh, it was eight uh, 1 through 8. I think it was, I just read to you from Abraham. Um, but in Luke 7, 7, uh, 17, 17, listen to Jesus. He said, when a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal, put on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, Jesus said, you should say we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. Here's the point of what Jesus was saying in verses 7 through 8. A bondservant must be willing to have one task after another put on him, but without thinking of himself and resenting his master. Ministry, the way I learned it and Pastor Chuck taught us, you know, 40-some years ago, is nothing like that today. But Jesus was saying, you know, as my servant, you need to, you know, we have to be willing to have one task placed upon us after another, yet without thinking of ourselves and not resenting our Lord. Lord, you know, I haven't eaten, I'm tired, and, and you know, not now I've been given another task, and and then in verse 9, Jesus, does that master thank the service, the servant for doing what he was told to do? Jesus, no, of course not. Slaves, bondservants have no claim to thanks. Even in perfect obedience, Jesus is saying in perfect obedience and service, we're unprofitable servants. 
Whatever we do for God is just our duty and obligation to Him. Now, this story emphasizes faithfulness to do our duty no matter what the the demands might be. If a common servant is faithful to obey the orders of his master who doesn't reward him, that is, that his servant doesn't thank him, how much more, though, should we as Christ's disciples obey our loving master who has promised to reward us one day? A faithful servant should not expect any special reward. Because what we do is only what Jesus has told us to done to do. Now, the word unprofitable servant that Jesus used means without need. In other words, nobody owes us anything. In other words, Lord, I don't need anything. The servant really was profitable. Because he took care of his master's fields, his master's flocks and food. What Jesus said here, what he means is my master doesn't owe me anything extra. I'm doing just what Jesus told me to do. And the fact that Jesus will reward his servants is totally a matter of God's grace. We don't deserve anything just because we've obeyed him and served him. That's what we're supposed to do. And as his servants, we have to watch out for having the wrong attitude in our service to him. Verses 17 through 19. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Israel. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. It had been, think of it, he says there, notice, it had been, the, 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 the Passover hadn't been kept like this since the time of Samuel the prophet. You know how long that had been? Four years 400 years since the days of Samuel the prophet that the Passover had been kept celebrating this Passover is described in great detail here they took part in it with they, they took part in this Passover with great joy and great enthusiasm now what was its significance and what did it mean to those who celebrated it well first of all in celebrating it they recognized their unity as God's people You see, the Passover was a reminder, a memorial of the time when they all suffered together under the bondage of Egypt. When they were a suffering people, when they were slaves under the same bondage of slavery, suffering, all of them suffered the same beatings and and other cruelties. And they recognized the fact that they were all the children of their fathers to whom Moses When he came, he came as the great prophet and deliverer. And the Passover lamb that they shared was not a bone of its body broken, was the symbol of the nation's unity. You see a picture of the church here. Secondly, they rejoice in a great divine deliverance. And it was a deliverance through a sacrifice. The main thought of the Passover was God's merciful and mighty intervention on their behalf, redeeming them. Redeeming them from the bondage and the slavery and the misery, bringing them out into liberty and happiness and making them a nation and a holy people to himself. And closely connected with the main idea of deliverance was that of a sacrifice. They celebrated the fact through the sacrifice of a kill lamb that they had been spared and they had been redeemed. Third, 
They see and they, 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 they experience in this celebration that they had fellowship with God and with one another. The feast of the Passover and unleavened bread was a feast that they rejoiced in together as families and as a nation before the Lord. And then they had true fellowship with each other, meeting and greeting one another as members of the same redeemed nation who the Lord had pitied and who the Lord had restored And while they were rejoicing in their heart as they fellowshiped with one another, they were also honored by the thought, you know what? We are meeting together in the city of God. We're meeting together in the courts of the Lord's house. We're meeting together in his presence. Their unity and their communion was blessed. Why? Because it was fellowship with God. It's a picture of when the church meets together. When we meet together here as Christians in worship, And even more so when we gather together for communion. We're inspired, we're stirred up, and we're we're made alive by this same spirit, by these same convictions and thoughts. That that, That at one time we all were in the same bondage. And at one time we all suffered the sins of that bondage. And at one time, Jesus Christ has saved us all from that bondage and from the cruelties that we experience in the misery of sin. And he delivered us through a sacrifice. Like the Passover lamb that kept the death angel from, from wiping out the Israelites. We have been redeemed as a people by a sacrifice, which was Jesus Christ on the cross. A beautiful picture there. And that's what happens when we meet here. We realize when we meet here, our basic unity with one another, our oneness with Christ. We're all members of that lost race that was once far away from God, but he had compassion for us and he lowered himself to save us. We're not bound together just because we're human beings, but we share the same human nature, but we're bound together. Why? Because we all are under this, because we were once we're all under the same yoke of sin who needed the same redeemer and who have all suffered the same afflictions. We rejoice together in the same wonderful redemption, a redemption that number one, not only was designed and started, but it was successfully finished as well. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Secondly, we, have, we, we, we share redemption that in its spiritual character and its everlasting qualities, it makes, it makes even the great deliverance of Israel from Egypt and, and even from the Red Sea. That was a great deliverance. But you know what Jesus Christ did on the cross and he gave us our deliverance? Those deliverances from Egypt and across the Red Sea, they are small in comparison to what Jesus did for us. And third, it's a redemption that could only be and was accomplished through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world who takes away the sins of the world. We meet to have a holy and joyful fellowship with one another and also a holy and edifying fellowship with our Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Beautiful picture here. Verses 20 through 27. And after all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him, but he sent message to him saying, what have I to do with you, king of Judah? That is, the, the, uh, the, the, um, the other kings that were going to fight. 
Josiah came out to, to fight them. And, the, and those kings said, Josiah, what do we have to do with you? I have not come against you, Josiah, this day, but against the house that which uh, the house with which I have war for God commanded me to make haste. Refrain, Josiah, from from me, lest uh, he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So Josiah came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Judah. I'm sorry, for Josiah. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day, all the singing men... And the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in the laments. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from the first to the last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. These verses 20 through 27 now record how Josiah died. I mean... We know that very good men make very bad choices and mistakes. We've seen it way too often. What these verses show us is is that what business did Josiah have getting mixed up in this fight between the kings of Egypt and Assyria? What was he thinking? Did he become prideful? Was his heart lifted up? Did he think that he and his people were more powerful than the disciplined armies of Egypt? Now, on the other hand, if he would have been attacked by anybody, and then he had gone to God like Hezekiah did when Sennacherib came against him, then he might have been helped to win. But to get into a fight with a great world power, for whatever reason, for whatever he was thinking... I mean, that was a huge and deadly mistake. And he paid the price for his foolishness and he paid with his life. So he really died needlessly and unfortunately. He was one of the best and bravest men to sit on the throne of Judah. Now his death was a sad thing. But again, it's not surprising that such a demonstrative and passionate people like the Jews were that all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah and and that Jeremiah also mourned for him because it was a time for deep sorrow and a time for grief and understandably so. Because the nation didn't just lose its valuable leader, but a king who was leading the ways of righteousness that resulted in prosperity for the people. So, again, it's very wise that a people recognize this fact and prepare themselves for it. You know, when a church or a family or a city uh, recognizes a good leader and loses them. So then when, when it comes to, the, to, to their loss, everything else isn't lost. That when a good leader is taken, they're prepared to go forward, to, prog- to progress. So that it's not, again, dependent upon the leader in order to keep them moving forward. Also, we see his righteousness. Why, why didn't God stop Josiah from from doing this, from throwing his life away. 
Why did he allow this bright and useful to stop, get in and intervene in this bright and useful time that Josiah was and aching? Why doesn't, why doesn't God intervene today between us and what we consider premature death? Why does he let the young men die in their prime or the young leader commit themselves to hard labor or, or life-threatening situations? These are questions that we often ask ourselves, wondering, if not complaining, God, why don't you do something? But we might ask, but we, not, we might also have to ask more ask, uh, uh, accurate questions of ourselves. What right do we have to expect God to give any of us, any man, any woman, any certain amount of years that we think we should live? Has God promised to give any of his servants a certain amount of time, a certain amount of years? No. We need to live each day that he lets us live and, and recognize and thank him as it being a gift of his goodness and his mercy. Instead of complaining about how short life is, we should probably be thanking him for the years that he's given us, that he does give us, which is way more than we deserve. And would it really be wise for our Heavenly Father if he was always stepping in and stopping us from experiencing difficult times and suffering or the natural consequences of the mistakes that we make or our carelessness just because we're in his will? Would that be the way to discipline, to purify and to perfect his children? No, not at all. When God lets death come when it's unexpected, it's not that he's unrighteous, unwise or unkind. And there's no doubt that when Josiah realized that he was severely wounded there in verse 23 and he couldn't recover, that he confronted death and he became reconciled to the will of God and he'd entrust his country to God's care. In closing, here's the lessons. Number one, the danger of meddling in other people's battles. Proverbs twenty six seventeen says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. And if you've ever taken a dog by the ear, you probably know what happens. You're going to get bit. You're going to get bit. And many times, both arguers will turn on the one trying to help them. The best thing to do is to stay out of arguments that are none of your business. If you have to get involved, try to wait until everybody has cooled down. Then maybe you can help. The second lesson here is the foolishness of rejecting good advice. Even though it may be given by an enemy. Neko told Josiah, don't interfere with God who's with me or he will destroy you. He ignored him and he was destroyed. And the odds are pretty high, third, that you're going to get hurt if you interfere where God has not called you. And fourth, the certainty that death can overtake all in a time when you think it won't. Jesus said, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at a time or an hour you do not expect. And fifth, the loss that a good man's death is to a community or a nation. 2 Kings 2, 11 and 12, we read about Elisha and Elijah. It says, as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, draw, uh, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, 
I see the chariots and its horsemen of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. He recognized the loss of a good leader. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the great lessons that we see here, God. And as always, Lord, help us to learn from these lessons, Lord. To learn from these examples, God. As Paul said, these things were written as for our uh, examples and, and, and for our advice, Lord. Lord, that we would learn from them and not have to learn from experiencing them, Father. But Lord, sometimes we're so thick and hard-headed, God, that we don't listen. And that we do have to learn the hard way through experience, God. But Lord, help us to trust the infinite wisdom of your word, of your character, God. Father, for you know all things and there's nothing that's hidden from you, God. You know us better than we know ourselves, Lord. Father, help us to be sensitive to your spirit and to listen to your word, God. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you find yourself meddling. You find yourself in places that you don't belong. You find yourself not listening to good advice and good counsel. And you end up suffering the consequences for it. Trust in the wonderful word of God. The almighty, the inspired word of God. If God has spoken to your heart tonight and you recognize, I need Christ. I need his guidance. I need his his wisdom. I need to know him, the living word. Then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, make your way down the aisle towards the steps up front. And as soon as the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith. Thank you.